welcome back to another episode of the Sprint and Talks podcast. I hope you enjoy your time with us. Are you an aspiring filmmaker? Do you love film? Or are you new to filmmaking? Sprint and Talks is the podcast for you. It is full of inspirational, informative, and fun talks with other filmmakers about their projects and their journeys. Scranton Talks is part of the Independent Film Creative Hub based in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hosts Luz Cabrales and myself, Desiree Zielinski, founded the Independent Film Creative Hub, which is geared to help filmmakers reach their potential in becoming successful creative artists. And I'm so glad you could join us again for another episode. Um, there's some really great filmmaking events that are happening in Northeast Pennsylvania if you're in the area. Uh, some of these may have passed, depending on when this podcast episode goes live. But these are worth mentioning, just so you know what's been going on. On May 11th, at the Jazz Cafe in Plains, for the Luzerne County Historical Society's 165th Annual Dinner, this year's theme is Lyman Howe and the History of Local Film. Lyman Howe was a pioneering filmmaker from Wilkes-Barre who first added sound to film, as well as creating his own projection system, innovating using moving trains and planes and film and many other firsts. So a bunch of us... Um, had the pleasure of going to that event. Uh, it was so wonderful to see the, everyone at the Luzerne County Historical Society and learn about Lyman Howe, which I had never known. And in correlation with that, on Friday, May 12th at WVIA Studios, there was a short film festival of early American film featuring six silent films created by Lyman Howe and others, including Luz Cabrales showed her film Sing to Me, um, Zach and Tony showed their film, They Come Back, and Rich Dries and Natasha Bowitsky showed Eight Years with Gilda. So that was so much fun um, for that film festival. And it was a panel discussion and Q&A as well. It was free to the public, and we learned about the impact local filmmakers had on the American film industry during its infancy. Um, I had the pleasure of also uh, presenting at NEPA Creative's Creative Meetup on May 16th. Uh, for the Art of the Film poster. It was a free event down in Wilkes-Barre. I talked about my process in freelancing as a graphic designer and designing uh, some film posters for independent filmmakers and my process with that. So that was fun. But looking into the future in June, there is going to be the NEPA Horror Fest 2023 Spooky Summer 3. The NEPA Horror Fest is an all-day festival bringing horror films, alternative visual art, local music, and more to the area. It's happening on Saturday, June 17th at the Circle Drive-In in Dixon City. You can get your tickets now at nepahorrorfest.com. So a lot of fun stuff happening is happening, or it did happen. <laughs> so be sure to follow us on our social media channels because we usually share those kinds of things as well, especially if you're in the area. It's good to get out there and meet some filmmakers and collaborate and just see the wonderful talent that's here in this area. But on today's episode, we had a wonderful guest who I was so thrilled to get. Uh, he was at the opening night at the Northeast Pennsylvania Film Festival back in April, and he showed a special screening of a work in progress. And it was so nice to meet him and talk with him and our special guest, is none other than Josh Fox. Josh Fox is an independent filmmaker and founder and artistic director of International Wow Company, a film and theater company working closely with actors and non-actors from diverse cultural backgrounds, including activist communities in sustainable energy and design, creating work that addresses current national, global, environmental, social, and political crises. As a filmmaker, Josh's work has been featured on HBO and Netflix, 
and have premiered at the Sundance and Tribeca Film Festivals. You may know him from his debut film, Gasland, which earned a special jury prize at Sundance as well as an Oscar nomination. He is internationally recognized as a spokesperson and leader on the issue of fracking and extreme energy development. So it was such a pleasure to have Josh on our show, um, to have him take the time to talk with us a little bit and inspire others. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Josh Fox. That, that was, was cool. Yeah, that was <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen all that back to back like that before. That was kind of awesome. Oh no, no problem. We like to take pride in the, the work that uh, our filmmakers do, yeah. and uh, it, we like to give them a good representation. That way, we can sort of talk about, uh, you know, in an extensive way of just what makes you a creative. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start the first question, and then we're gonna go Desiree, Tony, and kind of just keep the conversation flowing. Uh, anything particular that we may forget just let us know i mean there's really no rules uh in this show other than to motivate and maybe get some people that you know are doing what you're doing maybe mm-hmm. at your level that can get motivated to do more and maybe some things for the environment as well in the meantime uh That's so the cool. first question is i mean i have seen some of your interviews some of your work and you know the first thing that i like to say is you uh are a musician you're a theater actor, you're an actor, uh, you're a writer, director, uh, and you're a filmmaker and environmentalist. I mean, that's that's a lot, right, to cover in one show, but maybe we can get started. Let's talk about all of it. We're here for that. I just sort of kind of how you got started in that process. Uh, what came first? Um, I've seen and heard a little bit about your history as well uh, that you have. Uh, it is just, uh, you know, breathtaking as far as like, you know, we all have a little bit of a family history on our own. And the way you put your family history to work in your work is, is just amazing. So just if you can tell me a little bit about that. Um, and then I'll uh, we'll start the conversation. Um, so about my background, you mean? Whatever, just kind of how you got started uh, with being with the creative field. Not necessarily filmmaking, but uh, I yeah. heard that you know you've always been a musician, right? So maybe yeah, well, I played guitar. I think probably from before I could read, um, because my father is a folk singer mm-hmm. and he had a guitar around and he always would play for the kids, and that's sort of in the tradition of like Pete Seeger and Peter Yarrow mm-hmm. and. Those guys, those folk musicians would show up and like, you know, at your kindergarten class and play for you. And then like, it's always like a most amazing thing to see happen. Um, And so I I started off actually uh, in music um, with playing the drums and playing in bands um, with uh, playing uh, mostly um, with bands. uh, And uh, when I was in high school, I was in New York City. So I played at some pretty amazing places. I played at CBGB's. I played... Um, I opened for incredible bands. We had a punk band and a ska band, and had uh, it was quite some, you know, notoriety actually. Um, and uh, it was always a choice for me because I ended up in the theater when I was about eleven or twelve, um, uh, just because I was my family was in an extremely traumatic place, and I found a refuge in the in the stage in, on the stage and a safe place to express yourself and to be. Um, who you are, and I and I felt very motivated um, by the way that theater and a film are are really 
the, the concern of theater and film when we're talking about drama is really justice. Um, you know, comedy is about love and drama is about justice. Comedy is about people who fall in love and get married in the end. That's what defines a comedy, people get married at the end. And drama is um, about justice. And I felt very compelled to work in areas of justice because of all the injustice that I uh, was seeing um, just from very early on. Uh, so, so to me, it was always a question of, of seeing um, of a, a kind of very difficult and rich emotional inner life that had no other appropriate place. Um, and that I, and just the injustice that I felt as a human being um, was reflected in the great plays of Shakespeare and, and Aeschylus and, mm -hmm. uh, and the Greeks and Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. And I was lucky enough to be able to work on a lot of those plays on all my sons when I was 16, on the glass menagerie when I was 17, on Shakespeare when I was 12 and 13, <laughs> you know? Um, so it was a place that felt like the right place for me to be. And when I, when I got to, to college and went to Oberlin college for two years in Ohio, um, I really had to sort of, I felt like I had to make a decision between being a musician, although I was still playing in bands. Um, and I love that. Uh, and music has always been a big part of my work, um, whether it's recorded music or the orchestral score or music that I actually perform in the films um, on the banjo or whatever else. Um, and I had to make a choice between a theater and, and film and, I, and, and, and uh, theater and film and, and music. And my, and my, I really had to dedicate myself to one of those pursuits because I felt like I needed to do that. And mm -hmm. it became the theater because I felt the theater and, and film was also a musical form. Um, so that was the place where I could sort of do both. Um, nowadays, sometimes I see music and I wonder if I made the right decision. <laughs> but um, I think the next decade of my work will be really musically involved in a, in a whole new way. Very cool. No, and I mean, that's a great way to put it because, uh, you know, like you said, you had uh, experiences in your life that made you do certain things creatively uh, and it's taking you uh, in a different path every time. Uh, so it's just that's, that's just a great way to put it. Um, I'll leave it uh, to Desiree for the next question and then we can do more follow-up on that. Yeah, so maybe specifically going down the filmmaking path, like what was that turning point of like, I want to make a film and how, if you want to walk through maybe your first film and the creative process and starting that as well. Well, I never thought I would make a movie actually um, because it involves too much planning. I, um, I could not figure out how to plan uh, anything. I was in the theater because I would make theater with a group of people, with an ensemble in the room when we were in the room making it. And that was the fun part of it. That was the investigation. That was the, um, we were making things up as we went along and we had a deadline and we would create these new plays. And that's what I did with International Wow Company and still do today to derive new works for the stage. And we did that all across the world. Um, and uh, whether that was, was sometimes in New York City or, or in Asia or in, in Europe, mm -hmm. um, we uh, and my theater company, which I was the director and sort of the lead playwright for, we would derive works together. And that was an extraordinary process where all I had to do was sort of ask questions and we would make it up as we went along and I could see it in front of me. The thing about filmmaking, it seemed to me at the time, was this very strict process of like, okay, you have, here's your script and here's your storyboards and every shot is planned out. It felt to me incredibly um, suffocating. 
and also just something okay. just boring. Like I just did not interest. I love movies. I always wanted to go into movies, but I never felt that my particular brain with the way that I am could do it. And then I discovered that you didn't actually have to have a plan to make a film, um, that you could actually do it in the same way, but that was all because of the innovations in technology, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when digital video came along, you could make films, and I'm talking about films that were in standard definition, what we call standard definition now, which is which 480, which is very small, bad resolution. Um, you know, uh, nowadays films on digital video are 10 times the resolution of 4K. But what I'm saying is that we could make things as we went along and, and, and not have to plan or engage in the same ways. And I found filmmakers that did the same thing, um, that used improvisation, that had... Yeah. the ability for a structure to be the script and then you went out and you really, really made it. And those filmmakers like Mike Lee or the Dogma films, Lars von Trier, um, uh, you know, that there were people who didn't have to like have $10 million riding on every single you know week yeah. of production <laughs> yeah. that you could be operating at a small scale. So the first film I made was a film called Memorial Day, um, which is not a, a documentary, although people some of the times mistake it for being a documentary because the acting is so, so good. And the, and the filmmaking process is so guerrilla and rebel. And some of the stuff that we did, we actually did in, in the public. Uh, Memorial Day is a film about the Iraq war. Uh, it's about torture. It's about Abu Ghraib. Uh, and we started that film um, as a reflection on American society uh, and went and filmed it in this sort of renegade way in Ocean City, Maryland on the beach there uh, during spring break, during like this sort of most depraved um, alcohol, drug crazed date rape culture of violence that we could, we could infuse ourselves into. And then we took that same cast of characters and they were in fact the guards at Abu Ghraib um, doing the same sort of sexualized torture fraternity hazing that um, we saw in those photographs, but also that you see on the beaches of the United States every yeah. uh, during the time. So it was it was actually telling the story of the same people who did the the atrocities at Abu Ghraib. We just didn't tell people we were doing that. So we started it where they started, which is that they did all those same atrocities to each other on the beach and before they shipped out, and then they went and subjected Iraqis to um, haze fraternity style hazing, sexual torture, and and um, all those things that that they we knew that they did, but that what we were trying to do was create it as not this crazy aberration of these monstrous people, but something that in fact happens across America all the time. And the idea of normalizing torture was really an, an indictment of our of our culture. So we put that movie out. It was it was uh, very very lucky. Jim McKay, the great great film director, Jim McKay, and Michael Stipe, the lead singer of REM. Uh, executive produced that film um, just because I, I was connected to them through a, a mutual friend and they liked my, my work and my idea. Um, and it premiered at the Cine Vegas Film Festival. Uh, 40 people walked out in the first 20 minutes oh, wow. out, of, out of 400. It was absolutely, for me, devastating, although the producers were very excited and happy that there was <laughs> such an extreme reaction. People went to the box office and demanded that the film not be shown again and that they were going to burn the casino down if they did it. And um, they just, it was so such a wave of hatred and animosity that was coming towards this film because we, I struck a chord. I think we, 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 at the time I was, I was devastated because I thought people would love the movie and people did, some people did love it, but um, 
it was it became such a it was so poorly reviewed it got like 10% on rotten tomatoes um and it was compared by Robert Kohler at Variety magazine to Full Metal Jacket, uh, which is one of my favorite films. Stanley Kubrick, one of my favorite directors. And so, you know, there was this incredibly apoplectic outrage reaction to the movie. <laughs> and we couldn't get it on any station. Nobody would pick it up. We ran it at IFC Center in New York City for, I think, 10 days. Um, and at the time, I was... It's premiered at Santa Vegas Film Festival, and I had said to, I was totally broke. I was a theater artist. And I had said to Santa Vegas Film Festival, "Please, um, can I just drive to Santa Vegas in Las Vegas instead of flying? Don't fly me out. Pay my <laughs> gas money." Yeah. Because my in the back of my mind, I thought, "Oh, if they pay me to drive to Vegas and back, I can start this other movie about fracking." Because I needed to go to Texas, and I needed to go to Wyoming and Colorado. And so I needed to do a sort of mini road trip. And they said, yes, they paid for my gas. And so I was able to make the first bunch of sh shoots uh, for Gasland, um, which then, of oh, course, wow. became one of the best reviewed movies of all time. Uh, won the critics poll at Sundance. Put it was up at 95 percent on, on um, wow. yeah. Rotten Tomatoes and is now the 11th best reviewed environmental film of all time or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, it was a fucking, excuse my language, it was a funny experience <laughs> to be like totally hated and then to have this incredible hit. And so what we decided to do because of the immense popularity of, of Gasland, because how important the subject matter was um, and how much I knew the oil industry was going to attack me, uh, we sort of buried Memorial Day. And we, we, we felt that if, if, if it had gotten out, the movie, that um, I would be tarred and feathered uh, and the oil industry would cast me as a, a crazy, abusive, weirdo pornographer. And that was just not what I needed. We needed to save the Delaware River Basin from fracking. So we made a, a decision, yeah. which was a very tough decision at the time, to just erase and remove all trace of Memorial Day from from view, and um, you still can't see it today, which um, I, I kind of want to put it out, but um, maybe we'll do that next year for the 20th anniversary of, uh, of Public Grape. That would probably be a good good time to, to put it out. When we, like I said, the acting is so good in that movie that, and, the, and it's so real and raw and crazy that people literally believe it's a documentary. And they're like, how did you get access to that? Job of grave like that, and we were like, that, that was all acting. <laughs> um, but I would like to uh, put, it, put the film out at some point. Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, I'd be interested in seeing it too. But I mean, I could definitely see, like, I think documentary filmmaking at its core is kind of unplanned. You kind of have an idea of your messaging that you want to get out, but like, it's you're kind of going on the fly a little bit sometimes. But um, with speaking of Gasland, I did watch and I think it's incredible and spe specifically, especially being in Pennsylvania and living in Pennsylvania, how important that um, topic is. Are mm -hmm. you still, I was curious, are you still in touch with a lot of your interviewees? Are they doing okay? Or are you still in touch with um, them? Some are, uh, I'm in touch with quite a few people from Gasland, yeah. Um, some of them from PA. Some of them from Wyoming, some of them from Texas. Um, mm -hmm. Some uh, uh, have had to move. Uh, some have lost everything. Some are still fighting the gas industry. Some have passed away. Um, it's, you know, 
we did a lot of good with with Gaston with the anti-fracking movement. Certainly, New York State banning fracking was a huge thing. Certainly, banning fracking the Delaware River Basin, which was my whole ambition, was to save the Delaware River. We did that. Enormous success. We banned fracking all throughout Europe. And when I say we, I mean the anti-fracking movement um, and sort of the film together, which ignited so much consternation all over the world. Um, we toured the film to 500 cities and we did that and it went on HBO. And like I said, it was won the critic poll at Sundance, won the special jury prize at Sundance, won countless awards, won an Emmy for me for best director. It won, it was uh, nominated for the Oscar for best documentary. I mean, it was like being shot out of a cannon. It was crazy. It was a crazy yeah. time. And it put me in a position of being a leader in the environmental movement, which I, um, you know, was happy to take on. Um, and uh, lots and lots of media appearances, constant, constant interviews, so stuff like that. Um, and I was prepared for that uh, because I was prepared as an activist for my whole life uh, of that kind of campaigning, right? Um, at the same time, um, you know, we failed a lot of places. We could not get Pennsylvania to change. We couldn't get Texas to change. We couldn't get Wyoming to change. We couldn't get, um, and you know, fracking ban in California. We in Colorado, we failed over and over again. The industry just proved too powerful and our government proved too corrupt. And so we made a second movie, Gas Name Part Two, uh, which ended up being all about the Obama administration and how the Obama administration was not on our side, uh, which you would have expected potentially for a, an administration who said that they cared about, fact, about the climate change. Um, Obama uh, presided over the majority of the fracking um, in, in, in America. And certainly in Pennsylvania, we've had Democratic governors and we've had Republican governors. Uh, the Republican governors have been worse, but the Democrats have been terrible also. Um, I mean, on this issue, we have seen PA's woods decimated. We've seen water supplies get um, contaminated. We've seen people's lives ruined. Uh, and, you know, Pennsylvania is one of the most extraordinary places on earth in terms of forest. And we're seeing that get destroyed by the fracking industry. Let's just yeah. be really clear. Um, and it, it is ravaging the the state and it has to stop. And, you know, we all hoped that um, Josh Shapiro uh, with his criminalizing of the fracking industry would actually take action. Uh, but right now it's been a colossal disappointment. Um, they're reopening some of the areas in Gasland that have been under a moratorium, not far from Scranton, right? Just to the north in Dimmick and Montrose. Yeah. That there has been a drilling moratorium there for years because of how messed up it was. Now they're building a water line to those people, but they're going to open and reopen the whole area for fracking. And that's going to make it imp literally impossible to live there. You will not be able to get on the road without thousands of tr trucks. You will not be able to breathe the air. Um, the health problems associated with fracking are mostly not from the water. Because once you see your water contaminated, you look at it, it smells bad, you don't drink it. But you don't have a lot of choice when it comes to breathing air. You know, you yeah. can't just be like, oh, I'll breathe that air and not that air. You know, if you're in the area, the air is contaminated, you're going to get sick. And we're seeing a lot of illness. We saw cancer clusters throughout Western Pennsylvania that were totally um, in line with where all the fracking uh, was happening. So we saw some of the things that we predicted to coming true. And like Victoria Schweitzer, uh, the great person in Gasland, Gasland Part 2, says, you know, Pennsylvania, she calls it the getting place. First they got the timber, then they got the coal, and now they're getting the gas. 
and they have no recourse, no interest at all in protecting the citizens. Um, and I would urge to stand up to the fracking industry as much as we possibly can, wherever we can, because yeah. it's just absolutely outrageous under a democratic gov governorship that we're seeing this type of abuse happen at the hands of the oil industry with no protections for the citizens. Yeah, it's just mind boggling. I think that's what I love about um, film, even with Memorial Day. I mean, it was so like not well received, but I love those kinds of films that push you to know things and to push the boundaries, even yeah. if you're going to be hated for it. That's what I love about that. What, what love about it just film. it doesn't feel good to be hated for it. <laughs> it's not good when you're in it but i mean it's yeah. the, it's the kinds of things that's like that's why i love filmmaking it's it, mm -hmm. it it's like the devil's advocate essentially yeah well it has the power it has the power to do so much yeah so i'm and, gonna pass and we've it been to we've lucky we've been lucky to, to experience that yeah. you know that film gasland changed the world it, you can't have a presidential debate without talking about fracking. You can't talk about the environment without talking about fracking. You, you can't talk about the climate change without talking about methane. Um, you know, that's we just saw New York State ban gas stoves in all new new buildings. That's fantastic. So we continue to make progress. The biggest problem, however, is climate change, and that we have, with all of our greatest efforts, with all of the brilliant, most brilliant minds on the planet, from filmmakers to activists to writers to politicians the best and brightest of the entire world have not been able to stop emissions from going up. That has not happened as a result of all of our, all of our activism. So we, we, we have to, we have to figure something out. Yeah, definitely. And then I'm going to wow. pass it to Tony for the next question. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah it's kind you. of thinking about in the sense of that you promote, you, you work a lot in documentary now and like kind of yeah. thinking in terms of how do you, approach your next like what's your process behind approaching the next subject matter knowing that it could bring about a bunch of debate knowing that it can bring about a bunch of people who would be very opposed to what the subject matter is are you just always looking for something do you kind of see something and then go down that path with it to start and then develop it further like what's your approach to finding the next project or starting the next project essentially that's a great question i i well i i definitely feel a responsibility to the dialogue that we sort of started in a certain way right so I am very Gasland, Gasland Part Two, and How to Let Go of the World, and then Awake, A Dream from Standing Rock, which is the film about the uprising of Standing Rock. Those films have a certain kind of through line to them, which is that Gasland starts with this guy and living in the woods who has no real clue about any of this stuff, and gets sort of almost like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, just get picked up by this tornado and thrown out into this whole other. It's actually Gasland is based on The Wizard of Oz. That's the form uh, behind it. Um, and uh, I feel like every time you make a movie, you have to have some kind of uh, antecedent form that is informing what you're doing. And so for me, like in the position of the thought, the thinking of what we're talking about in terms of climate change, I do feel like if there's a subject within climate that I feel personally connected to and that I feel like is not really being talked about, mm -hmm. that's what I'm interested in. So for example, or what do we need now? Like, so um, I, I believe two things about filmmaking. One is a documentary and a film really has to be a question, not an answer. Mm -hmm. Now, you see a lot of documentaries that are, like Desiree was saying, in the, you know exactly what they were going for at the beginning. 
right? I see a movie like Blackfish, for example. You watch the first five minutes of Blackfish, and you're like, I know exactly what the rest of this movie is going to say. I actually turned off Blackfish after five minutes because I was so super bored. Um, there are other movies where they start the movie, and it's clear like something is being asked that they don't know the answer to. Like, to me, it's got to be about an, a question, an investigation that I don't know the answer to. Right. So I didn't know the answer about fracking and gas. I didn't know the answer about ga in Gasland too. The question was, how is our government going to treat all of this incredible evidence that we have? That this is, how are they just going to plow through? Or are they going to listen? Or are they going to fight about it? You know, um, How to Let Go of the World was a movie about that asks a, a question, and in the middle of the movie, the question gets answered, and we have to start a new question. Um, you know, and we sort of quit the old movie in the beginning of the, in the middle of that movie. So for me, it has to be a, a question, um, and. And it also has to be um, something that, that I, I think not just a question to me, but a question for a lot of other people as well. Yeah. Right. Like, I always say that a film has to be like, I, you're the only person who can make your film, right? Why is that true? Why are right. you the only person who can make that film? Answer that question. And also, why does anybody else care about it? <laughs> Right, like there, it's, there has to be an you're the only audience member of it. Then, you know, that's fine. Some people just want to make movies for yeah. themselves. That's totally fine. Go do that. But like, who else cares about this? So it's the intersection between those two things. Um, so the film that I'm working on right now, it's called The Welcome Table. Um, it's about climate, uh, climate refugees and the fact that we're going to see a billion people have to leave their homes or move because of climate impacts. A billion people, like an eighth of the planet, is gonna to have to move because climate change will make where they're living inhospitable in the next like couple decades. So we're gonna see the largest human migration in history. And what governments are doing is they're building walls. The real climate budget in most governments budget is not solar farms and wind turbines and so on. It's the wall that they're going to yeah. build. It's militarization and criminalization of migration, which is a Mad Max future that we can't even imagine how terrible that kind of thing is. And it's whipping up xenophobia, whipping up racism, whipping up hatred. All of the things that are the hallmarks of this era that we're trying to defeat, right? So we're making a film where I'm going all over the world investigating places where people are, are climate refugees and in America and, uh, and abroad. And then we're bringing all of those um, stories to a single table to sit down in New Orleans and eat and drink and talk together. And that's the welcome table. The welcome table is a song. It's a spiritual song uh, from the South that a friend of mine here in New Orleans, uh, John Boutet, who's the guy who sings the Treme theme song. Um, he, he sings that song. And uh, so this wel the welcome table is a, is a place, but it's a fictional place. And um, we're going to make it a reality. Uh, so the idea is a wall on its side that can be a table. And that, that the wall itself is really just a metaphor mm -hmm. for hatred, for get out of here, for racism, for competition, for xenophobia, for nationalism. And a table 
is a symbol of welcoming. And we want to create that metaphor and that symbol. Because because welcoming is a virtue to everyone, right? Conservatives and liberals and 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 Israelis and Palestinians, you know, everybody understands that like there's an idea that we should welcome each other. And why wouldn't we focus on what it takes to welcome people rather than what it takes to incarcerate or punish yeah. and kill them? Um, so that's um, our, my sort of contribution to this conversation about refugees um, and the climate. Next is this idea of the welcome table. Also, um, you know, on my father's side, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm a, my father was a refugee from until he was 10 years old. We were displaced people. His entire family, extended family, was killed in the Holocaust, which I've spoken about in other projects. And so the refugee mentality is something that I very much grew up with and that the Jews in Europe were never were not allowed to own property. Um, Jews were not allowed to own property for thousands of years. And so it was very important to my father to own property and build a house on it, which he did in Pennsylvania. Um, and so that is one sort of through line in my life makes this important to me. Um, and on the other side, my mother's Italian. She just passed away, but she threw these incredibly huge, wonderful dinner parties, which I do a lot of. I throw dinner parties. Like I love to throw dinner parties. 50 people cook for everybody. And um, to me, it's a very theatrical event. So those are sort of <laughs> like why this movie is important to me to make, you know, um, because I, I believe, you know, because my family has been subject to... Uh, you know, obviously, the worst discrimination that a that a group of people can, which is genocide and extermination, right. in just one generation ago, um, and very very vivid and alive, and and me and all my family members' uh, imagination and understanding of the world, and on the other side, like we want to welcome people, <laughs> we want to cook for you, <laughs> like um, so that's that's why why I'm making this movie, and I also I have to say that the last thing I'll say on this was you know. Going around the world and seeing all the places that have been kind of destroyed by climate change, and that was floods or fires or, or hurricanes or mudslides or extreme weather or drought and famine. Oh. Climate change is here now. Right. Yeah. Now, everyone in Pennsylvania knows this. There's no snow on the ground in the wintertime. Right. And right. We are watching our forests not be able to keep up. We're watching ticks and tick-borne diseases go crazy. We're seeing the impacts in the forest, right? Everybody is. Who knows the forest? And right. Um, uh, you know, but when you have mudslides that take out whole neighborhoods and you have hurricanes that wash away whole pieces of cities, I mean, the vision of, of horror that I, that I see in my head, it's getting very hard to finish this film because it's so rough. Right, Things right. Out there, and it's coming for all of us. And I love how uh, you put that together. And I have seen in some of your films how you say, uh, you know, your father uh, found refugee in the woods. You know, your father came to the woods to live. He built a house in the woods. You know, with within the earth, and just to be able to leave it to you uh, to have your. Uh, family there and then now you have people trying to take that away or contaminate that and then you have you're also creative so you're putting all that in the mix right uh and i think you know just to kind of go on the question that uh tony said is it must be very difficult uh as an artist to do that but also 
maybe empower you in a way to just keep going in telling those stories. I love how you uh, mentioned Awake uh, in just how uh, they neighborhood in this culture you know welcomed you as well to tell a story uh, i talk about collaboration and filmmaking all the time mm -hmm. right but collaboration comes in many different ways um and if you don't mind just touching a little bit on that uh, experience that you had with the wake mm -hmm. because i know that you you went through a lot of hardships there i mean and also a lot of mm -hmm. uh violence that that came your way and the people that were around you how do you uh deal with that you know as a filmmaker and how do you keep going knowing that uh you know you could be in danger yeah by telling some of the stories Luz, that's a terrific question and i really think about that a lot actually because i think i think my my work with my theater company we started in thailand and then we were in japan yeah. and then we were in indonesia and in india and in germany was always about collaboration and how could we find ways of doing collaboration that we're going to keep representation uh, a very active and, and keep ownership for the people who were involved? Because you see a lot of collaborations where it's not really collaboration. And like some people are just clearly in charge and they kind of subjugate other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and we didn't want to be that. We, want, we didn't want to be, you know, colonialists on uh, in our own stage, right? And Awake, the, uh, the Standing Rock film, um, was a collaboration. I felt that a collaboration was uh, uh, possible. And the proof is sort of in the, in the pudding, as they say. Like, I, I went out to people and said, hey, I think, I, I first of all, I was invited there as so many others. And that was such an extraordinary, bold, beautiful move that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe did, which is they said, we're in trouble and we need everybody. Now, that's unusual it, you know people the, for 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 a native american tribe in america to be like we need you all to come here and now when people got there they got an education in indigenous sovereignty and in the ways that what the struggle was really about right so it wasn't about what a lot of people thought it was about when they arrived it wasn't about the environment so much so as about preserving these people's land and and, and the water and to what does it mean to become a water protector rather than an activist. These were great things. And so when when I had all this footage and I had the extraordinary partnership of Florice Whitebull, who is the star of my sort of section of the film as a narrator and as a voice there, I met her on the first night I was there and she gave me an interview in the parking lot of this movie theater, which you see right there actually, mm -hmm. um, where she talks about having a number written on her arm and being thrown into cages uh, with elders. And I, I was putting out material for Now This, the uh, internet outlet on Facebook at the time. And that video went to 32 million views um, in like a week. And it was absolutely extraordinary and out of control. Um, and uh, uh, I ended up making five more viral videos for a total of something like 70 million views just from being there, like live on the scene. I would post all my footage every night and say, anybody who wants to use this, go for it. And I had an editor, I was working with it, now this. And they were just cutting stuff and making new videos and they were getting lots and lots of views. In fact, President Obama was asked about the situation at Standing Rock because 
And his first quote about the subject was because the head of Now This, he went in for an interview at Now This, and the videos had become so popular that Versha Sharma, the editor of Now This, asked him about Standing Rock, and he really put his foot in his mouth. He said, oh, we're going to see how that situation plays out, which was incredibly offensive, considering that playing out meant more people getting pepper sprayed, more people getting rubber bullets shot at them, more people getting yeah. injured. Um, freezing water, uh, concussion grenades, which you see there in the footage, with, which mm -hmm. blew the arm off of one of the water protectors. Um, a young uh, 20, a girl in her 20s, woman in her 20s. Anyway, you know, so I did not feel that it would be appropriate for me to say, okay, I'm making this movie on Standing Rock. Because obviously I'm a tangential figure although I, being there people were like really happy that i was there they were like thank you for coming and i'm so glad your camera's going to get all this and blah 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 you know but it was you know a story that had to reflect what the actual uprising was which was a collaboration the uprising itself was a collaboration and so you know it wasn't just it was owned by no one, of course, the, the, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and all the Native Americans that were there were the and had to be the leaders of that movement. But at the same time, I felt strongly that it was a collaboration that we saw unfolding in front of us and that the way to handle a film was to be a collaboration. Now, also, we were just making what we I thought of as an emergency short, an emergency feature film, just like the pieces that I made for now. This were out immediately because it was an emergency. So we thought Awake would be the first of many films, which of course it was. But what we were trying to do is get the film out as fast as we possibly could so that it would actually impact the situation. And we almost did it. Like I gave the directors, you know, we were able to raise $75,000. Each director got, I think, $15,000 to make their section. And there was, I think, 10 grand or something like that left over, um, 15, to do the post. You know, we had people working on the sound edit. Um, and so the whole film cost less, I think, less than 100 grand. Um, and so we, we just ran with it. And uh, it got into Tribeca and then picked up by, by Netflix for a very, very little amount of money. It wasn't like a huge, I wish it had been millions of dollars that Netflix paid us. Um, but I, I, I was able to get into them and bargain with them and say, listen, just take it for a song, put it up on Netflix and we'll run with it. It doesn't even have to be a Netflix originals or whatever. And, it, and they said yes to that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, having it on Netflix for a couple of years uh, was, was great. We, we had screenings everywhere. Um, but for me, the idea was, okay, collaboration. Who are the film directors that I know who are there? And James Spione, who was a terrific filmmaker who I'd known from the fracking movement, was there at different times than me. And Myron Dewey, who um, I ended up working with for the next seven years after the film, or six years after the film, um, who recently passed away. Um, was killed uh, under weird circumstances that no one quite knows what happened. And he was a very, very close friend of mine. Um, I miss him dearly. You know, they all said yes. And Doug Goodfeather, uh, Lakota Sioux, direct descendant of Sitting Bull, said yes to be executive producer and in the movie. And Florese Whitepole, you know, um, wanted to, to do the narration and write with me. And so we had 
yes to the idea of collaboration. Um, and because of that, the film was completed in record time. Unbelievable how fast that, that happened. And um, it was like, and also, I didn't even look at what the directors were doing. I just said, this is on you. Go make what you're going to make, you know? And when it came back, it was like, oh my God, this fits together. Right. I was amazed because there's my section, which sort of brings you into this idea of this dream with Florice at the beginning. And then in James's section, which has no narration, you're fully immersed in this dream. And then Myron wakes you up as that indigenous filmmaker. And then there's a coda at the end of which I directed with Florice, uh, where she is saying, will you, will you, if, will you dream with us? And it's so, it just added up in a beautiful way. And it was like the hand of, I don't want to say God, because I don't know if I believe in God, but it was like this hand of art <laughs> that like, it just, this just happened. And um, I, we, we did very few revisions. I didn't touch James's section and touch Myron's section. I touched mine a little, and, mm -hmm. but we were there and it happened so, so, so fast. Um, and so that's very, very lucky. Uh, Gaslands 2 took three years to make. The movie I'm working on right now, The Welcome Table is taking four or five years to make. I'm working on a film, another film about nature, which is three years in the making. And, and um, so, you know, that was just very amazing circumstances. But I do believe that the way we think about um, uh, um, art uh, today, I do like, I do think a single director's vision is still a very important, beautiful thing to have. Mm -hmm. But I also believe in other types of how, how can we do other types of collaboration, which for the very same reason we do for, for the way, which is that different identities are going to have different ways of presenting what they're saying, right? Um, a huge conversation between myself as a Jew and Myron Dewey and Doug Goodfeather over the years has been about intergenerational trauma and genocide, and that's reflected in another project that we've been working on. But, um, you know, we are very distinct voices. And to try to figure out how do you have those distinct voices in one film, that's an interesting proposition. And I think, in a way, it works. It's sort of the best example of that that I've ever seen, I think. Just my own horn, I guess, in some ways. But it, somehow it, it becomes, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. No, no, no. Uh, when, uh, I mean, you put it beautifully. I know I have seen you say this, protect the sanctity of each individual story for this particular mm. project. But I think you, you, you do that in all your films. Uh, because it is about the stories, about what are you telling, uh, what question are you uh, answering. So I love the fact uh, that you put that. And uh, I'm going to give the room to Desiree just to kind of end this with uh, just a little bit more of the theater part of it and how that... Now let's talk about the individual part of how you project that into the theater. Um, you are um, you're an actor yeah. as well, right? And just uh, I know you you co-founded, uh, you founded, uh, uh, and you're the artistic director of a, a international Wow Company. Uh, mm -hmm. It is a film theater comp company working closely with actors, uh, non-actors, uh, diverse mm -hmm. cultural backgrounds, uh, including you know many communities. Uh, so how do you build build that? Um, 
the work that you do in a commercial, well, I wouldn't say commercial, that's that's a, a bad word, but just more in a, in a bigger uh, budget. And now you bring it to the theater where sometimes you don't have a budget. You know, you don't have mm -hmm. those resources available. We're struggling with budgets right now on right. all of our projects. But yeah. <laughs> right. So how do you um, tell that to, to the filmmakers, to the actors that are trying to do what you're doing um, and it just they're stuck right that's a great um question uh, in terms of being well okay i made this film memorial day i got to cine vegas when i got i had used the budget uh, the travel budget for cine vegas to like create the first shoots of Gasland. <laughs> when i got to cine vegas i was with all these filmmakers and their films, Cine Vegas had this reputation of being like the films that were too hot for anywhere else that we would play them. Um, and I met, um, I needed an editor because I had edited my film for three years and I hated it. I hated being alone in a room. Hated, hated, hated being alone in a room. And I met a guy named Matthew Sanchez who was there with his film. And I told him what I was working on. I was like, hey, you know, I'm working on this thing about gas drilling and fracking in Pennsylvania and I really really need an editor and he's like oh well I'm from Pennsylvania and I am an editor and I was like hey can we get <laughs> and I get back to east will you well, let's have a coffee or whatever and that ended up being probably the most without a doubt the most valuable collaborative relationship I've ever had um, so there's two things here uh, I would say number one um, my teacher Ann Bogart who I, I love to, to death and she's a great great um, theater uh, she's a genius theater director she um said you know whatever you're really passionate about and whatever you really want to get done talk to the person sitting next to you at dinner about that project just talk it doesn't matter who they are they don't have to you know they could be important or they could not be important to the project or not you never know just talk to the person sitting next to you at dinner about that project and she said this because she was like at a dinner a fancy schmancy fundraising dinner of some kind and she was sitting next to this guy and he was like just leaned over and said can i tell you about my film you know she's not a, a film person and so he just talked to her about this film and he sketched out this whole plot the film ended up being this film called the red violin that won all these awards and went to the oscars and all this stuff years and years later but she realized that what this guy was doing was just talking to whoever was sitting next to him until the thing got made, <laughs> which I really believe in, you know, because after a while, the person sitting next to you at dinner ends up being a person who's like, hey, you know, I'm a movie editor or, oh, I have a, I'll put $2,000 into that or I'll, I'm a billionaire or whatever it is. You just talk to the people. <laughs> um, and the, the other most about what this idea is, um, but the most important thing about filmmaking is, and theater making, is it, it's collaborative. It is, you need all the people, you know? Um, you know, in New York City in the 90s and the early thousands, there were so many, so many, so many actors who would move to New York City to do acting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we didn't have any money, but we had a space where we could rehearse and we had ideas. Um, and, you know, the biggest free resource in making work was actors. So we cast a lot of actors, but 30 actors in every play. The plays would go on for three hours. And they were great. They were really huge, epic things. But people would come because so many people were involved. And because so many people were involved, it made a ripple. 
And so I think the most important thing for anyone is to make sure you're not doing this alone in the room. You know what I mean? The most toxic thing I could imagine for a filmmaker is to put a film up on TikTok and get a million views and be like, oh, that was a good one. Because that's, that's nonsense. You know what I mean? There's so many videos on TikTok or Instagram that have millions of views that are just awful. Um, in fact, the ones that have the most views are usually have to do with like kittens um, or, you know, <laughs> like explosions or boobs or like whatever. That's like what's the pop, you know, like that is a bad lesson. That's a bad lesson. So what you want <laughs> is to make movies, even if you're making them on your phone, and sit people down in a room together and show what you've done and watch the audience watch your movie. Because then you know when they were bored, when they shifted around in their seat, when they laughed is very, very important. And, you know, when they sighed, when they reacted. Like I um, just recently at the Northeast Pennsylvania Film Festival was so lucky to be able to show this work in progress. Mm -hmm. That was so important for the film because I got so much more confidence in the movie because I heard the audience react. There were moments when they laughed. There were moments when they went, oh, there were moments when they went, oh, you know, that's more valuable than anything. And you'll never know that if you put your film up on TikTok, right? right? And then, of course, if you put it up online, it's totally disqualified from all the film festivals. But the point is that, that you yeah. want to be in a room with people, other people, right? Why do we do this? We do this to be intentional. We do this to be in the room with other people. Don't do this to watch it on a computer at home. And that, because that's, that's not the experience. You might think that that's the experience, but that's not the experience. The experience is to be in a room together, right? All, like Shakespeare said, all our hearts transfigured so together. The point is that we're in a room together and that we have to be intentional about this. Like yesterday I was at Jazz Fest in New Orleans and I saw the most unbelievable show of Herbie Hancock, uh, 83 years old, Herbie Hancock, playing unbelievable music. I mean, fresh as anything like you've ever seen, like a master, real master, and not a master who was sitting and playing his old hits, a master who woke everything up and everything was different and wild. And it's like, I was so floored. And yet, I saw people in that audience on their phones, canceling the phones, not yeah. in the room. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, the whole point of seeing these things together is so that we are together. Right. That's right. And when you sit there and you open your phone, you're not there anymore. When you allow people to do that, Bob Dylan will not allow phones in his audience. If, if the ushers at a Bob Dylan show see a phone, they'll throw you out right there. You're gone on the street. Um, and I, I think that's right. because. What we have to do, and this is what I loved about doing those gas and screenings and the, how to like all the screenings that we did, hundreds and hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. I don't mean just the ones that I didn't go to. I mean, 500 screenings that I went to, <laughs> you know, that I, that I, it took 10 years, you know, because there's an intentionality in the room. Those people are watching that movie so they can save their forest, so they can save their rivers, so they can save their child's. Uh, lungs. There's mm -hmm. a reason to be there, and attention is not just attention is also tension, right? 
attention is broken by these devices. And attention is also intention. So when that, that idea that we have to be intent and attending and we have to um, be there. And that is an in, the intentionality of, of how you are creating an audience. I think that's the root of this whole process, right? So I think, and that's also, by the way, how you get the collaborators into the room. Because I'm assuming y'all don't have no money to pay them, which means your ideas have to be really good and your intention has to be really powerful, right? When I was working with Matt on Gasland for a year, it was just the two of us because we were like, oh my God, we have the inconvenient truth on our hands. We have to save the water of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And that's why we were working on it for no money for a year. So our intention of being there was really strong. It was really deep. It was really profound. It was really important. So the more important your intention is, the more it you're going to get people in the room who are going to be there with you because it matters. And yes, hopefully at some point, maybe if you're extremely lucky, you might be able to pay the rent from doing that. But probably not. Probably yeah. not ever. Yeah. You might pay the rent from doing the crap Hollywood project they put in front of you that's just a disaster and you don't want to do it anyway. You know stale and boring, whatever. I mean, a very, very lucky person gets to be able to pay the rent from doing the things they want to do. Um, at the same time, like, you know, that's not what we do this for. That's not. What we do this is to change the world and to change ourselves. And, you know, the capitalist system is making sure that we don't get to do that for their dollars increasingly more and more every single day. Um, my films are not going to sell to Amazon. They're not going to sell to Hulu or Disney. They're probably not even going to sell to Netflix. I'm very lucky I have deals with HBO because HBO is radical and amazing and wonderful, and they yeah. know their audience wants that. But that's the only one that's there, and hopefully they stay there for a while. But the way that we work on this right now, I think about Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger was blacklisted for 16 years. 16 years from being the most popular band in America, and then he wouldn't ref he refused to t testify in front of the McCarthy hearings you know, mm -hmm. in the 50s, and he was blacklisted. He couldn't go on television. He couldn't book Carnegie Hall. He couldn't do anything. What did he do? He went and toured high schools, colleges, farms, kindergartens. This Land is Your Land, that song, everyone rejected that song. Nobody liked that song. They hated it. No publisher would put it out. No record label would print it. It was kindergarten teachers that were like, hey, what was that song? I want, I want, can you send me the lyrics to that? Because I want to sing it with my friends. <laughs> It got pop. It became the unofficial American national anthem because he played it in kindergartens when he was blacklisted for 16 years. That's the situation that we're all approaching right now as filmmakers. That's the situation we're all in if you want to make movies and work that counts, that matters in that way politically. You know, so we have to get very good at showing it at kindergartens, in our backyards, <laughs> on our farms, at places like the Northeast Pennsylvania Film Festival, all those places that are not corporate environments. That's where we have to where we have to be. So I'm I'm happy to be on this show with you guys, and um, you know that's my message for filmmakers: is yes, put it on TikTok, but don't, don't. Mm -hmm. TikTok is going to be important. You're going to get lots of TikTok views because of kittens and explosions and boobs, and that's what's going <laughs> to happen. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and that's it. But don't, but don't, that, that's, that's yeah. fool's gold. That's not what that's this is about. Nice. I think that answers the question, what advice would you give to filmmakers, Desiree? So that's, you probably don't have to answer that. I mean, ask that one because that was perfect. But I know Tony had a, uh, one question, Tony. Do you still have it before we uh, close our program? Yeah, I know, we, I know we don't have a ton of time, but just kind of thinking about your work, because you do this thing with most of your work, it seems that it's like, it's 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 that news thing, right? It's you get it on the news and it's the bullet points and it's always the rhetoric for them to have people watch more news. But what you do is it's like it's that news story, but it's it's not only told it's told at the personal level, right? Mm -hmm. So like that idea and then thinking in terms of like you're in the work, you know, that's not always typical of documentaries. So where did that come from? You know, like where did feature well, you I'm not as in a part of the storytelling? Yeah, well that's okay. I'm sorry to need to interrupt you. I'm not in a way. Um, because it wasn't, I did, it wasn't appropriate. Um, I think a lot. Right. Whose dream is this? So it was not yeah. my dream in that film. It was Florey's Whitebull's dream, and she be, she was the narrator. Um, right. You know, we made early on. This is exactly the answer to the question. The thing that I just tells you. Early on, um, I had done the narration of this opening sequence of Gasland because I didn't know, you know. <laughs> Charlotte Johansson at the time. I didn't know Alec Baldwin. I was going to call somebody to do the narration. So I, I said, you know, I'll do the narration. I'll tell the story. I'm a storyteller. So I started telling it. Right. You know, and so Matt and I, the editor and I, uh, and the activists in the Upper Delaware River Basin, uh, the Damascus citizens, we held all of these information sessions where we would show pieces of the film. And it was for us also our experimental way to, to look at it, right? So we had four segments. We had this opening, which had little bits of my story and that I narrated, which was also kind of funny. We had a section about a gas well that exploded in uh, somewhere in central Pennsylvania in a place called Green Lake. The well exploded. You could see it from space. It was like a huge fire. And I had driven out there to see it, and I couldn't get in to see it. And it was this dramatic segment. Um, and we had a segment on the health impacts in, in uh, Western Colorado, and a segment on the air in Fort Worth. And the health impacts in the air in Fort Worth segments did not have my narration. They were very much straight documentary um, without that mooring narrative narrator person. And we would watch the audience watch the work, and lo and behold, we figured out that they liked the ones with me in it better. And it was also my story, right? It was here in the upper, yeah. upper I was there in the upper Delaware River Basin, and I we got the gas lease, and so that was appropriate. I had skin in the game. There was a reason for me to be there, but it was still the rule was I was going to be in the movie as little as possible. I did not want to be a clown. I did not want to be Michael Moore. I did not want to be Morgan Spurlock. I did not want to be this funny <laughs> right. jokey kind of person. Yeah, there was humor in it, but right. it was deadpan humor. It was like my best yeah. Humphrey book. Impersonation. It was just investigation, <laughs> yeah. detective, and it had to be humor, but it, it couldn't be stupid. Humor, yeah, right. Um, it definitely, so it definitely it frames it, it in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It so, frames so, it in a way that makes it unique and it makes it personal because the way what you're talking about, you're not talking about it from a super opinionated standpoint. Again, you're you're framing it in a way that makes it palatable for the audience. So well, the approach thought, is really great. Had, I'm celebrating the approach. It's just that well, it's thank you. it's fascinating to see that that how it's interweaved in. You know, because it's not a typical thing. So we knew we had to play in Montrose. Yeah, we weren't going to be Michael Moore and play in Montrose. This is not going to happen. Yeah, you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Right, right. We knew we had to play in Wyoming, and and so I had to try to find a way 
to be honor, honor my own Pennsylvania roots and my understanding of, of how we talk in PA, right? <laughs> Which is different right. than how they talk yeah. in New York. Um, you know, and I'm, I have that, I have that experience in, in both of those places. And I chose, you know, to really be the person who I am when I live in the woods in PA, you know? So that person is a distillation of a part of yourself. You know, and you're in your own movie, you're never yourself. You're always just a flex of yourself, right? You're always a portrayal. You're a per person. Um, and, and it was always a question like, I was only there to serve the story. If I could serve the story, then that would be my role, right? It was never to be like, I want to be in this movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because the rule of this, and this is very important for young filmmakers, it's not about what you want. What you want is what you're going to see on TikTok. Right, because it knows your brain, it knows your innermost impulses, it knows what websites you visit, it knows what you want, and you're going to see that. That's toxic and bad for you. <laughs> you got to focus on what the film wants. What is the film? So when we did those opening sequences, we were paying attention to the audience. What does this film want to be? What does it feel like? What's carrying the message the best? And in those movies, it turned out, it's you, Josh. You have to do some of this. Excellent. And I was like, okay, I will do it. Why not? Um, I'm I'm a trained performer. I'm a trained. I know how to use my voice and how to convey these emotions. And I also know how to take the emotions out of it so that I'm not overdoing it. You know what I mean? You're not getting in the way of the film. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, a skillful thing to do. Uh, and it worked, um, and it was one of the aspects of that film that I think was, or those two films, or three films, that, that is remarkable and totally different than what you might see elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, it's only as much as, as absolutely necessary. I'm hardly in Gasland 2 at all, because mm -hmm. at that point, that story was much, much less about me. You know, I'm at the beginning yeah. of it, I'm at the end of it. Um, but like, you know, the, the, the real, the, the way that came about was I knew what I didn't want to be and I knew um, what the audience was responding to and finding the tone of voice, that was interesting because it was deadpan, it was very um, flat, it was very not, um, I didn't want to crowd out. It was a, what you were saying, Luce, about making sure that the people's voices were louder than mine and that their stories was, had the most integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and that I was this quieter voice in the back of people's ear. And in fact, um, a lot of people told me, they were like, oh, your voice is so soothing. I was listening to Gaslight when I was going to sleep at night. It was helping me. And I was like, what are you doing? You're going to have nightmares about Dick Cheney. <laughs> so I started recording these bedtime stories, and it ended up being a whole new project, um, which I'm, I'm, I do these recorded uh, bedtime stories, which I wrote, which are very funny and, and weird. Right but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, it's not we out gotta be downloading the app now. <laughs> no, well, they're called Josh Fox's anti-totalitarian bedtime stories, um, and it's supposed to come out in the book. Uh, they're actually they're all pretty they're pretty funny. They're um, anyway, it's a whole topic for another day. But but that's how the voice uh, that's how the the I, the decision to make was one that was very active, it, and it came not from our desire at Matt Sanchez, me as a director, me as a person. It came from Watching the audience watch the film, 
and seeing that they liked the segments, but they had more to hold on to in the mm -hmm. segments where mm -hmm. I was narrating uh, and that more of my story was included. Um, where as if it, it became very normal and very almost uh, deadening when we when we got rid of the humor and just focused on how horrible fracking is. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, no, I, but I encourage people to do that experimentation process, <laughs> right? Yeah. Experiment with it. And, you know, sometimes you're going to find out something you don't really like, maybe, you know. Um, you know, but that's part of it. I it's think what that's, the film that's wants. It's not what so. Wants. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's what the film wants. It's what yeah. the film wants. That's that's very yeah. very good advice. I think uh, a lot of the people that are watching <laughs> and they'll probably watch this, you know, as we are gonna leave it uh, for the world to see, uh, that they take something from this because mm -hmm. I know I have. Uh, I know Desiree and Tori yeah. definitely have, mm -hmm. uh, and it just it will make us better artists, uh, but also telling the. Uh, those stories about people, communities in our neighborhoods uh, is what is important, at least uh, for me and what I have seen, uh, you know, from a lot of filmmakers here. So uh, we want to thank you for your time. I know you. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. You're at a different caliber, and uh, but we love that you were able to come here and spend uh, an evening talking to us and motivating us uh, to do just to be better, better and continue to do what we love. My pleasure and all my love to Northeast PA. You know, we've, we've got to try to keep the part of the world, you know, as frack free as we possibly can um, and, and, and keep our forests and, 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 and our wild places alive. I know how much we all care about that. Definitely. Thank you so much. What I'm gonna do uh, is uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna play your uh, clips once again, uh, but that will uh, be the end of the show for everyone. Do we have any recap on any updates, uh, Desiree? Uh, one last little thing. Sure. Um, so I do have a website right now where you can watch a lot of all of my uh, films are free oh, there, great. and a lot of the interviews that I do. I do an interview program myself. Um, wow! And that's Josh-Fox.Ghost.io. And um, you can get there for free, or you can decide that you can give us $5 a month. Um, okay. That's uh, very helpful in our work, because um, like I said, we are also always scrambling for a budget. <laughs> um, but if you feel like uh, subscribing, there's so much stuff there um, that and nobody else can see any other place. Um, Josh-Fox.Ghost, uh, like spookyghost.io. <laughs> and um, Please go there and, and see if uh, if you feel like uh, getting a subscription, whether that's a paid one or an unpaid one. That that's wonderful for us to, to have that. Great, great. Um, what I'm gonna try to do. Let me see if I can uh, just put it up on the screen so we can make sure that uh, people get that. Yeah. Uh, and if they uh, if they want to reach out or anything, they can do everything through the page. I'm assuming just uh, or uh, on on Instagram or. Um, you know, I'm easy to find Instagram, Twitter, Josh, I'm at Josh Fox film, um, on, uh, okay. on, uh, Instagram. Um, so okay. follow me there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, or, you know, next time you see me come to town, which hopefully will be soon. Um, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. Is there any 
I don't know if there were any comments or questions from the audience that's watching. But. Just, uh, you know, everyone is very happy that you were able to share yeah. this just as, like us. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll go ahead and do that. Uh, Desiree, I think uh, we did all the updates that we needed to do for the evening, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think we'll just have to close it out now. <laughs> so. well, well, thank I you so much. I thank really you appreciate. for for your time. And if you don't mind just hanging out for a second uh, behind uh, the scenes and uh, we'll say our proper goodbyes on our end. Thank you so much uh, again. And um, let me try to find. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks everyone so much for joining us with this evening for our Scranton Talks with Josh Fox. We couldn't be more appreciative of his time. Uh, we always have wonderful events coming up. So be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date and subscribe to our YouTube channel to see any of these previous talks. We also have a podcast that's on multiple platforms where you can get the pod, where you get podcasts and you can listen to these interviews as well. Um, feel free to message us if you would like to be on the show, because we would love to share your journey as well. Um, the independent film creative hub is geared for you. And we also want a special thank you to the Lackawanna County arts and culture department for a grant that helps make this possible. And for all your support for coming to our events and watching, and it's really appreciative for us. It helps us grow. Um, this is geared to help filmmakers reach their potential in becoming successful creative artists. So be sure to visit our website, ourcreativehub.com, and join our directory. It's free. Thank you so much again for joining us on the Scran Talks podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. We always have wonderful events coming up, so be sure to follow the Independent Film Creative Hub on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can see any of these interviews which have live streamed on there if you can't make a live stream. Feel free to message us if you would like us to be if you would like to be on the show. You can direct message us through our Facebook page or Instagram page. We would love to ha have you share your journey with others and inspire others on their filmmaking journeys. The Independent Film Creative Hub is here for you, geared to help filmmakers reach the potential in becoming successful creative artists. And be sure to visit our website, ourcreativehub.com, and join our directory. It's free to sign up. And that's a wrap, and we'll see you again soon.